Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favour in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Hahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai, went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're wrapping up Esther. 
today as we get ready to have Pastor Ben here next week to speak with us. And then we will begin a series on the I Am statements in the book of John about Jesus and who he is as we lead up to Advent. And perhaps last week you'll remember that we talked about the fact that Haman died. Haman, who is the enemy, the one who was wanting to annihilate all of the Jews, is dead. He has been hung, literally, (laughs) gone. And it's kind of like a TV show, in a sense, that you've been watching, and you've been leading up to the, the climax, the major event, and you see Haman hanging there, and it fades to black, and you think to yourself, what a great ending. And then you realize that there's still one more episode left to go. You think, wait a minute, that would have been a great ending. That would have been perfect spot for this to be over. But there's actually still another whole episode that needs to take place. Because what's happened is, remember, the king has said all Jews can be annihilated. Everyone can be killed. All Jews should be put to death. And there was a specific time and a specific date. That can't be overturned. The king's law says this is going to happen. And so it can't be overturned. And we even recognize that the king sees that in this particular chapter that we read. Because he says to Esther, look, I've done everything that I can. I gave you Haman's house. I have raised Mordecai up. I've done everything that I can possibly do. I can't overturn my own law. But I can give you this signet ring, much like I gave to Haman. And I can let you come up with a new law that might supersede the old law. I can give you the ability to write something that might be counterintuitive to the old law and might be a protection. And so that's what Mordecai does. Mordecai says, oh, that's great. All right, so he gets the king's signet. Now, again, it's so interesting to watch this king. I mean, he is so manipulated by everyone. That's a whole other sermon series. But what happens is they write out this law. And what do they say? Exactly the same thing that Haman said. The only difference in the law is that the Jewish people can respond to those who are going to attack them. So Haman's was this. Go out, kill, destroy, and annihilate every Jew, man, woman, and child, and plunder everything that they have on this date, at this time. What Mordecai's law says is if you are attacked, you can kill, destroy, and annihilate every man, armed man, and women and children, and plunder all their things. Now just real quickly, that doesn't sound very godly to us, does it? We hear that, and and maybe in our minds we think to ourselves, How how do we reconcile that with the image of Jesus and this self-sacrificing, ever-pursuing God? We'll we'll get to a little bit of that. And if you recall a few weeks ago, I said I'm working, trying to think through this a little bit even more in depth. One of the benefits that we have in Esther is this. God's never mentioned anyway. (laughs) But we can't get off that easy. Because we know God is ever-present. Because we know that they fasted 
and they've sought God. We know that God's providence has shown itself over and over again. As a matter of fact, what we recognize that's happening in this chapter and the next few chapters, which the next few chapters we didn't read, and I, and I ask you to go read them, but I want to tell you what they say. Essentially what happens is the day arrives and there are people who apparently have gotten word that they can attack the Jews and the Jews have gotten word that they can defend themselves and so there's bloodshed. There's a battle and people die. As a matter of fact, it says in Susa that quite a number of people, the capital city, the citadel. And then what we recognize is that there's a second day that Esther goes and says, we need one more day. We've not killed enough people. Okay, maybe she didn't put it that way. And a second day of killing happens. And there's more destruction and more bloodshed. So much so on the first day that the king is like, holy cow, I didn't realize you Jews were so powerful. But what is taking place is a fulfillment of a promise. Actually, two. The first promise that we need to recognize that's being fulfilled is the reason why we're in this mess anyway. The reason why, remember, Haman and Mordecai got in this feud. If you remember, Mordecai is a Jew, and Haman, right, is from a tribe of people that were supposed to be destroyed already. He was from a group of people who God had said, as the, the Israelites were coming out of Egypt into the Promised Land, he said, I will destroy all of those people because they have hindered my people from coming into the land that I promised them. And he waited. He didn't do it immediately. And he waited for King Saul. And he told Saul, now it is at the time for you to do this, for you to annihilate them. And if we look back and remember in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, 14 through 19, it tells us that Saul goes and he goes to destroy the people, but he holds off and he keeps the king and he keeps all their good things and he keeps the women and the children alive. Now what God had said is, I want you to destroy everything. And what Saul said was, I'm going to keep the best for you, God. For me. For you, God. Nope, for me. And so Haman, who is part of that line, is still alive. He wants Mordecai to bow. Mordecai says, no, I'll bow to the king, I'll bow to anybody else, but I'm not bowing to you because you're my sworn enemy. That's why we were in this mess to begin with. That's why we got to the point where all Jews were going to be annihilated. And so what we see taking place is the promise that God had made to say, I'm going to rid the earth of this particular group of people because of how they've hindered my people from coming into the promised land being fulfilled. Interestingly enough, they fulfill it with grace. How do we know that? Because it tells us in two times that the killing takes place that they do not plunder. They were given the right to plunder, to take everything, but the Jews do not plunder after they kill. They say, we're not going to take all their stuff. We're not going to keep, we're not going to bring it in. We're going to leave it alone. That's what God had told them originally to do. Kill everything and don't plunder. Now, some would say that because we see in here, uh, it says that they killed this many men, that perhaps the Jews didn't kill the women and the children. I don't know if that's accurate or not. What I do know, that is if we look at chapter 9 <laughs> in this, 
we see that almost 75,000 people are killed. So in some sense, whether they killed women and children seems not to matter that much. But it was a promise that God had made. Now why he made that promise and how he made that promise and what that looks like for us, that's something that we have to wrestle with in faith to figure out. It can be a thing that might turn our heart away from God, and we have to be honest about that. But more than the promise to just those people at that particular time, it was also an earlier promise, a promise that took place at the very beginning of the world, a promise that when sin came into the world and caused fracture in our relationships, a promise that came into the world and caused us to be separated from God, separated from ourselves, separated from everybody else, and separated from place, it's that promise that God said, I will crush the serpent, I will restore my order, I will bring salvation. That is the promise that's being kept here in Esther. Because we know that if the Jews are annihilated, that if this people that God has chosen is taken out, what we do know is that Jesus wouldn't be here to save us. Because it's through the Jewish nation that Jesus was coming onto the scene. And so God's plan all along was through a chosen people to bring a chosen representative, ultimately himself, to bring salvation. And so the promise is not just the promise to take care of this one people group who hindered the Israelite nation from coming in, but is the promise to bring salvation to the world. It is saying that I'm always faithful in my steadfast love to pursue you, to have whole relationship with me, with yourself, with all others in place. And so I will do anything in order to have that happen. And so God allows in his great wisdom and providential mercy for the promise to carry on. So the first thing that we see is that there's a promise that is fulfilled in this. Maybe it's helpful what Reed and Logman says in their commentary about Esther. They say this, the paradox of the divine warrior is that while he fights off every hijack to Israel's destiny, whether from enemies without, like Haman, or unfaithfulness from within, because if Saul had obeyed, we wouldn't be in this situation either. He is also bearing the suffering of human history within himself. The God that battles carries sin and suffering with his own groans. And he finally does that on the cross. And he draws his sovereign wrath down upon himself. This idea of holy war, these two countries battling against other, takes on a dynamic new meaning. Because what we see in God is the divine warrior who formerly brought down the sword of Assyria and Babylon on Israel or brought down Israel's sword onto Assyria and Babylon is now himself pierced by the same sword from the hands of the Romans and the Jews. 
So in carrying out the promise, God, who is this divine warrior, who when we see in the Old Testament these things happening, is ultimately the one that says, I will carry all of this onto myself. And thus fulfills the promise that I will always and forever be in pursuit of you to bring you back into whole relationship, truth relationship, right relationship with me, with yourself, with all others, and with place. The second thing that we see taking place here is protection. You see, the simple fact is, is that law couldn't be overturned. And something did have to be written to protect the Jews. Because had Esther just gone, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Haman's dead. I've got all his stuff. My life's pretty good. It's cool. Then when that day hit, in that month, guess what would have happened? Every Jew would have been killed. And there would be no recourse because it was the law of the land. And so God had to allow the protection of His people. God had to allow the protection of His chosen people who were going to be the line that Christ was going to come through so that He could fulfill His promise. And He does that by allowing Mordecai to write this other order. It's a sense of protection that says, if armed men come against you, you can fight back. Justifiable homicide is what some would call it. Now today, we don't necessarily have people coming at us with sword or gun to battle us. They're not coming at us saying, we've been given the right by the law to kill you Christians. Now in some countries that is happening. But here it's not. But we do have things that battle against us. We do have things in our own hearts that say, um, we want you not to listen to what God has called you to be. We want you to think of yourself and who you are. What battles may be most against us is this. I deserve it. I want it. I'm smart enough to have it. And it brings me pleasure. And in our own hearts, we allow those things to take the place in battle with us, with God. Some would call it temptation. It's those things that we, in our minds, for some reason think, just as we always have. That's good for my eyes. That's good for my soul. And it'll make me great. But God says, I've brought protection to you. If we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it reminds us that God will not allow us to be tempted more than we can handle. That He will provide a way of escape for us when those temptations come. James puts it to us this way. If you want to turn there in James 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 14, here's how protection takes place. It reminds us of what it looks like to be tempted. But each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
You see, the reality is God has given us protection in two ways. One, He's given us protection by writing a new law into our hearts. And it is the law of grace. It's the law that says, no, I have redeemed you. I have pursued you and brought you into loving relationship with me. That you are no longer separated from me, but you are with me and I am for you. And in that, we recognize that when I sin, when I fall, when I misstep, when I allow the little emperor me to sit on my heart and say, this is good for you. This is right for you. It will give you pleasure. God says, no, but I love you in spite of it, even through it. So we don't have to run away in shame anymore. We don't have to hide ourselves. We can step forward in that. That's the first way that he provides protection for us. The second way is he reminds us that there is a pathway that leads us to that. See, it starts in our hearts and our minds. And we begin to think about it and dwell on it. And we begin to justify and say, yes, this seems good and right to me. But if we're in Christian community, if we have brothers and sisters who love God and love us, they can walk with us and remind us that no, that's not right. That's not good for you. That will lead to death and destruction. And so he gives us our gatherings, the church, the body of Christ to speak into one another's lives, to say to one another, brother, let me hold you. Sister, let me walk with you. Let me pray for you. Let me remind you. Let's be challenged by one another. Let's sharpen one another so that we are protected by those things that seek to destroy us. So there's a promise that needs to be fulfilled and there is protection. But there's also a problem. You see, because there's that second day. There's that second day where Esther comes back and says, maybe not enough. There's that second day where they've already killed a lot of men and possibly women and children. And people have gotten the idea that we can't fight against them. That they have the right to take care of us. There's that second day. The first day, they've already taken care of all of Haman's sons. They're gone. They're done, all ten of them. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's really interesting. They list their names in the margin to pull them out to make sure that they're seen. See, we've killed all of them. All of them are gone. We actually fulfilled this thing that God wanted us to do. But there's that second day. Now, when you read various number of people who study this and are far brighter than I am. Some will say, yep, Esther really stepped in it there. <laughs> Esther really walked in her flesh there. Esther really walked into a place where she said, we, we, we're not sure this is done yet. We're, we're not positive that everybody understands the strength that we possess. We're not sure that they see that God is on our side. And so we want to make sure that we take care of this issue. We want to make sure that it's really nipped in the bud, so we need another day of killing. And then there are psalms who want to say, well, the reality is maybe everybody wasn't killed, maybe there were still people who thought they could take them on, and so they needed to have that extra day as protection. I fall on the side of the problem. 
And I do that because I know my own heart. And I recognize the heart of Adam and Eve in the garden. See, because the problem is this. The edict is given to bring protection, to keep the promise. And so they're allowed when they're attacked to kill. But they're not quite sure that God's got it. And so they need an extra day. Adam and Eve, when they're told, you cannot eat of this tree, they say, we can't touch the tree. The problem is that our hearts have an issue with trust. And we want to add something to our protection and the promise of God. Esther needed one more day. Some of us will go like this. Yes, of course I've been saved by grace alone. It's Jesus' work in my heart that has brought me in. But I also need to do this. We do a Jesus plus something. And the reality is, is it's not Jesus plus something because the promise and the protection is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That it is not something extra that I need to do. It's not an extra gift that I need to receive. It's not an extra thing that needs to happen to me. That it is Jesus' work completely and fully on the cross when the warrior God takes the full brunt of his own wrath and brings salvation to the world. That is when salvation steps in. And so while, like Esther, we often sit back and go, I need to add something to this promise and protection. What we see clearly through the story of Scripture is that no, God has always had it under control. God is always to be trusted in this. And God has freely pursued you in all His steadfast love to say there is nothing you can do or add to the work that I have already done to bring you back into whole relationship with me. Back into understanding completely who you are in me. Black and being able to be with those that are around you deeply and fully and understood. And back in the place that I have put you so that you can prosper. What are the things that you add? A good way to figure that out is this. To say in your heart and in your mind, I'm sure God would love me more if. If you have something to add on at the end of that, then that's the thing that you're adding. I'm sure God would love me more if I had more hair. Can't do anything about that. I'm sure God would love me more if I... served more. I'm sure God would love me more if I gave more. I'm sure God would love me more if I stopped doing this. While all those things are proper and good, while all those things that maybe you put in your head are things that you should be doing, not because you have to do them, but because you are responding to the love of God in doing them. 
they're not anything that makes God love you more. They're not anything that secures your salvation from the protection and the promise that he has given to us. And so the encouragement for us and maybe the warning for us is this. We want to be like Esther who steps into her true identity here. I'm Jewish. (laughs) But we don't want to be like Esther when we have to say, one more day, (laughs) one more thing. Let's pray. Father God, you are good to us. And there is nothing more we need to add to the work that you have done. Father, you say boldly in Exodus that you are compassionate and gracious, that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in love and faithfulness, that you maintain your love for us, and you forgive our wickedness and our rebellion and our sin. Father, thank you for doing that. And let us trust that completely. That your love for us is so powerful, so beyond our comprehension, that there is nothing that we need to add to it. And in response, let us bring you glory and honor and praise and love you and love everybody else that we encounter. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.